I can remember the fear that I had, um, but I'm standing next to my mother. And at this point, I'm, you know, a head taller than my mom, actually more than that, but, and just kind of holding her and recognizing her fear and anxiety happening. And I've got equal amounts of fear and anxiety, but there's a certain sense of obligation I have to kind of hold it in. And I am, yeah. I mean, tears are streaming down my face and I'm pretty sure I'm heaving, but I'm trying to be this, you know, strong midshipman yeah. holding his mother there. And that was the first time I really realized the significance of, of the life I'd lived to that point. The accomplishments that you know my father and his contemporaries you know you and, and and franklin and pinky and all the others that i grew up around really had done not just for the nation but for humanity i am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean hi i'm kathy sullivan and i'm an explorer exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place it simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. My guest today is Che Bolden, the grandson of legendary educator Ethel Bolden and son of my spaceflight buddy and former director of NASA, Charles Bolden. But as you're about to learn, Che is very much his own man and a very accomplished leader. I met Che in 1981, 10 years after his birth, and watched him forge his own unique and remarkable path, training as a fighter pilot and serving a 26-year tenure in the United States Marine Corps, where he worked at the Pentagon and completed various tours overseas, including two years in Afghanistan. In this wide-ranging conversation, Che tells me how he managed the son of the astronaut badge and the influence of Top Gun, and how he's applying his entrepreneurial skills with the Bolden Group, managing science, security, and the emerging space economy, along with his mission to advocate for the other 50% of the population to be involved. Well, I'm delighted to be talking today with you, Che. Uh, we must have met around about the time that you were nine or ten years old when your family moved to Houston as your dad had become an astronaut. It's been a long time, which is not to say we're old, but welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, it has, you know, I people always ask me about my childhood, and, and you are one of those ensconced portions of my childhood. So, yes, it's come full circle. <laughs> Yeah, I have a couple of fun Bolden family stories, but let's start way back before the move to Houston. I always open these conversations with people by asking, you know, who they were as a child. You were born in 1971. I think your folks, your family was up in Maryland. Your dad must have been at something like test pilot school, maybe, or just becoming a, a marine aviator. Yeah, so I was actually born in Cherry Point, North Carolina, when he was uh, stationed at Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point, towards the tail end of Vietnam. He was an A-6 pilot. 
And Cherry Point was where the A6s, one of the, the Marine bases that had A6s. And for those who don't know, Marine airplanes and A6s is a side-by-side, usually air-to-ground attack airplane, right? It, it is the greatest attack aircraft ever created. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I never got to fly it, but I did look at it longingly growing up, watching him climb into the cockpit and climb out of the cockpit. I didn't get to see much more than takeoff and landing, but that was one of those things that I did that shaped my early childhood. But I was born in the Cherry Point Naval Hospital, which no longer exists. And ironically enough, I almost not quite ended my career at Cherry Point, but I was at at Cherry Point as a senior officer myself. And I often went to the site where the hospital used to be. And there is just a little brick uh, walkway that commemorates where the hospital itself was. But yeah, I was born in Cherry Point. Shortly after my birth, my my dad went to Vietnam to fly for a year, uh, flew over 100 combat missions out of Thailand. And my mother and I moved down to South Carolina to live with with our family. That's uh, As you have talked to him, you know that, that the South Carolina heritage of the Bolden family is pretty deep. Yeah, it's an epicenter for sure. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, a couple highways, a couple stadiums, a couple libraries, a couple schools. And that's not all about your dad, by the way. That's also about your grandfather. Exactly. And my grandmother. My grandmother yeah. was a prolific educator. She's probably... Not probably. She is the reason why Charlie B and and I are kind of motivated the way we are is because she instilled in us very, very early that education was the key to success in the future, regardless of what type of education, just as long as you were learning. So was she a real influence in your early life? I mean, you spent like a, a year, your year one to year two, very much in her presence. Incredible influence. Uh, both maternal grandmothers were there for quite some time in my life and very influential And Ethel Martin Bolden, uh, my father's mother, and then Adele Peterson Walker Bolden, my mother's mother, both were lifelong educators. uh, And my sister and I would routinely go back to Columbia. My parents would pack us on a plane. Back then it was Continental. We'd ship us, fly us over to (laughs) to Columbia, and we'd spend the summers there. And so my, my childhood from 1981 until I graduated from high school, every summer we would go back to Columbia, South Carolina, and then we also had you know, holidays and, and things and family reunions. But going to Columbia was was pretty influential. And I would split time between my maternal grandmother's house, my paternal grandmother's house, and then my mother's oldest sister. Uh, she was there as well. So I'd spend a lot of time across those three homes. All of my what cousins. What kind of things on- did you do? Uh, when we got there, um, when I was with my paternal grandmother, Ethel, she would often take me to libraries and to shows and things that were education themed. She was very in touch with the University of South Carolina and the entire South Carolina education system from the university level on down. And so there were always programs that we'd get into. And before STEM became a thing, you know, I'd find myself in these science fairs and science uh, summer programs. But then also because her husband, my paternal grandfather, had been in athletics, I also found myself doing a lot of athletic camps uh, as well. He was a pretty as as I think you discussed with uh, with Charlie B on on the previous podcast. His father was a well known coach in the Palmetto yeah. State, and so I routinely would have uh, sporting equipment that was two sizes too big for me that was given <laughs> to me as gifts uh, that I eventually would either grow into and they became obsolete by that point. Either way, uh, it was a really really healthy and rich childhood. Yeah. One of the things that, as I tell my story over time lately that kind of surprises people, I guess, is, you know, I grew up in a very well-established, socioeconomically stable, middle-class yeah. family. And depending on where you are in the United States of America, that surprises some people because their preconception of the of the nuclear black family is not commensurate with the nuclear well, family, generally speaking. It's that it kind of doesn't exist. It's a large, a common stereotype. Right. By the way, one other secret decoder ring 
uh, item for listeners. It's uh, if you know the Bolden family at all, and you're kind of in that circle. Charlie B means Charles F. Bolden Jr., the Marine Corps well general by the time he retired, an astronaut that I flew with several times. Che Bolden's father. So right. Charlie B means dad in Che parlance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Charlie B, CFB Jr. Uh, you got to know to call him Charlie or Charlie B because Chuck is not allowed. Yeah, that is a, that is verboten. Verboten. Matter of fact, you know he's on Twitter. Not not a prolific Twitter user, but as we were getting him onto Twitter, he allowed his granddaughters, my daughters, to to pick out his handle, and I knew the right handle, but they opted to go. I don't know exactly what it is, but. Any title or any label of anything, whether we get a book eventually, I believe the title should be Just Call Me Charlie, because as you're aware, that's what he tells everybody, that's regardless of yeah. age, experience, education. I was like, look, just call me Charlie. It's almost it's almost a catchphrase of his. But yeah. yes, uh, Chuck, not good. Uh, Charles no. will work. Yeah. And Charlie. Charles to him is like Catherine. To me, it's usually coming out from <laughs> wife Jackie. Mm-hmm, <laughs> he mm-hmm. uses Charles or Mr. Bolden, and that means we need to have a conversation. Hey, while we're on the topic of names, Mm -hmm. you're named Che after the Cuban leader Che Guevara, which was a pretty, pretty gutsy choice of your parents to make in 1971. And I'm curious when you became aware of that name and if it's been a thing or not a thing through your life. That story is one that a lot of people don't necessarily believe. So I was born in 1971. At that point, Ernesto Guevara had been dead for three years, you know, a victim of of a CIA-enabled assassination plot, or there's a variety of different ways you can describe it, but let's just call it what it is, assassination plot, uh, where they cut off his hands and his head and spread it out to, as, a, as a symbol of what happens to the resistance and, and communism and the like. However, at the time I was born, he was back in the news, and I can't remember exactly why, but it was also on the back end of, of the heaviest part of the civil rights movement. And there was still a significant amount of emotion around the resistance movement. And my father, yeah. uh, he and a, a mate of his, maybe it was a squadron mate, I don't exactly recall the specifics, were feeling somewhat militant. Uh, and, <laughs> and they saw the name Che as this very powerful name. And for those who do not understand the Etymology is that the right term for it? That you go yeah, back and origin yeah. of it. Yeah. The origins of it is is che is a very common term in Argentina, which is where Ernesto Guevara is from. It's like people saying dude or bro or man here in U.S. Okay. English, uh, and so che in Ernesto Guevara's mind represented every man. And I I know that part of the story because that's that's the part I prefer people think about uh, <laughs> as opposed to you know. Ernesto Guevara becomes Che, becomes the right-hand man for Fidel Castro, and then does some unspeakable things on behalf right. of, of you know extreme socialism, Marxism, and the like. Um, so that's in, a, in an effort to, to seize on the militancy and the power of every man and, and resistance, he and his friend decided Che was a really strong and powerful name. And so they picked that. Now, and I think my father may have mentioned this before, but the second half of that story is Che was supposed to be my given name, my first name, and how we would go forward. However, my dad and my mom had picked Che Anthony Bolden as my name. Now, back to Ethel. Ethel was somewhat of, you know, she grew up... A little more staid person. Not a very, probably militant in her own tactful, gentle way. Yes, but then also somewhat superstitious. Ah. You know, and so in her mind, uh, anyone whose initial spelled a word, that was a bad omen. And so Che Anthony Bolden, spelled cab... And she was wow. not having it. And so they then inverted the Anthony and the Che, and I became Anthony Che Bolden, went by Che from that point forward. And so not only is the name somewhat problematic, 
the order in which my names are throw people off because I go by Che and everybody's like, wait a minute, who's Anthony? Yeah. I was like, well, that that's me. But I don't my brother me. goes by his middle name and it, you know, it's thrown lots of people off, including me on occasion. <laughs> so given the varied understandings of Che and the presumptions people might make about what was the motivation? Why are you burying that name? They might make presumptions from, you know, your parents wanted to protest by your parents, you know, shove it, shove it in the man's face. You ever get any guff about that, grief about that, that you had to navigate? So growing up, no. Um, By the time I was of an age where it became anything of relevance to me, uh, we'd already moved to Houston. You know, we were there in in Clear Lake. And the demographics of those who were around us in Clear Lake, they just, they weren't necessarily in tune with that. So my name was more problematic from, first off, pronunciation. Nobody could, they'd look and see C-H-E with this little funny thing on and they wouldn't know how to pronounce it. So it was Chi, Ch, you know, all of those things. Uh, then because it was easy to rhyme and rhyming slang was a thing, you know, I got all kinds of name nicknames or epithets that rhymed with Che. Yeah. It was not until 2009 when President Obama nominated him and he was confirmed unanimously by the Senate to become the 12th, I always get it wrong, 12th administrator of NASA. Yeah. That it became an issue because the blogosphere, you know, lit up and everybody thought that Obama was putting this communist slash Marxist in to run the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And look, because he named as, his son Che. Exactly. It's evidence. Clearly. Exactly. And I remember, you know, I, I did not know what you all learned a long time ago is you don't don't read the press. Don't read what people say. <laughs> and so I was busy reading this and getting incensed by some of the comments and some random persons like, hey, let's just let's just look at this for a second. Senior Elder Bolden. You know, at that point was uh, a retired Marine with with uh, 34 years of service. At that time, I was a lieutenant colonel with more than 20 years of service. And like that would be a really hard stretch for someone to say that, you know, the, the communist regime of, of Cuba and the Soviets had this insidious presence within the government. That deep, deep infiltration. Yeah. 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 And, and at the time, you know, a couple of years later, the term the deep state became a big right. thing. That, that was kind of some of the precursors to the deep state. See, it's the deep state. They've been there embedded for a long time. They've that, been that planted. Was, yeah. Yeah. That, frankly, that was actually the only time that the name association was of any semblance of an issue mm. in my life. So I'm pretty fortunate in that regard. Uh, yep. Never let facts or reason get in the way of a good conspiracy route on in the blogosphere. Right. I still want to know more about what kind of child do you see yourself as having been age, say, five to ten? I mean, you grew up in sort of the age of fairly structured childhoods, you know, the sports camps and the programs and things. But your growing sense of self and what you were, uh, what you remember being interested in and driven by the intrinsic drivers, you know, I mean, grandmothers are putting a lot of structure around it, but uh, you know, we all become aware of what's intrinsically driving us, regardless of the patterns and structures around us. How did that, how did that appear to you? I think my earliest sense of self started right around the time my sister was born. So Kelly, my sister is five, five years younger than me, give or take. Uh, and we were living in Carson, California at the time. And there are certain components of that time that really resonate with me still because it kind of defined how it was. I, I've always been, and it, not to shoehorn a concept into this podcast, but I've always been a bit of an explorer of a different sort because I've always wanted to try things and try new things. And back then- That's not I shoehorning, could, that fits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were a couple instances back then that, that still stick to me this day. So we, you know, again, we lived in a roughly middle of the road, socioeconomic neighborhood. We were right on the edge of Compton, which to most people would be misleading. They would think, oh, you lived in the, in the ghetto, in the hood. Yeah. Um, no, you know, where we live in Carson, California, even to this day is still somewhat middle of the road when it comes to the socioeconomic segments. 
So up at the end of our street, one of our neighbors had a pool. And I had not learned to swim yet at the age of five or six. And for those who are listening and know some of the old tropes, it's not because of my skin color. It literally is because I hadn't had the opportunity yet. And as you and Charlie B talked about, you know, he's a prolific swimmer and was very, very good at it. So there was no way I was not going to learn how to swim. However, I hadn't done it yet. And I remember going up the street to a friend's party and my parents had told me not to go, uh, but I went anyway. I got in the pool in the shallow end and everything was fine. And then someone dared me to go and jump in a deep end. And I was relatively fearless as a young man or young lad. And so I went and jumped in and I couldn't swim. So I went right to the bottom <laughs> of the pool. And I think it was one of my friend's older sisters came and kind of got me from the bottom of the pool. I hadn't ingested any water yet. And so they kind of laid me out and I was good. But right at, as soon as that happened, someone came and said, hey, your mother is looking for you. And so I ran back down the street, not even a block dripping wet in a swimsuit, <laughs> no shirt. And as only a five or six-year-old kid can do, I came in from a bright, sunny Southern California afternoon. So my eyesight was dimmed and I go into the house. Right. Everything's dark. And in my pea brain, little child's brain, I think my mom has the same vision I have. And so I can't really see her. And so she asked if I went and got in the pool, which I wasn't supposed to do. My answer is like, no. And I'm dripping <laughs> wet. You know, I've, I've got, she's like, really? You didn't get this the thing got to work. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, so so that ended up uh, not ending so well for me. So that was the first one of the first uh, experiences <laughs> I had as far as exploration is concerned. The other one was um, our neighbor right next door had a pomegranate tree and the pomegranate tree would always lean over our backyard. And so I was always on the fence. We had these old cinder block fences that you'd see yeah, in Southern California those. homes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just crawl around those all the time. And I'd walk around the fence all the time. And as the fence got higher from the ground, you know, my anxiety would go up a little bit, but I would, you know, day in and day out, I would learn to jump just a little bit more and just a little bit more. I just kept jumping off the fence. Finally, the fence wasn't high enough. And so towards the front of our house, you could actually crawl up on the roof. And even as a, you know, five or six year old, I was able to crawl up on the roof. Uh, so I started jumping off the roof there. Fortunately <laughs> for me, never broke anything. But that was the beginning of kind of me pushing boundaries in ways that didn't really stop until yeah. well into my adulthood. Yeah. So that was, that was the initial development of my my exploratory psyche, if you will. And then from that point forward, again, you know, demographics are at play because I was often one of one or, or one of few, even in Southern California, where it was a higher ratio, I still was somewhat of an oddity to people. And so there were a lot of times where people wouldn't want to do something. And I was a de facto, hey, you go try it. Kind of like the old commercials from life. It's like Mikey yeah, tries Mike, anything. Mikey will try anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, so instead of Mikey, it was Cheche. Hey, Cheche will go and try it. And so I, I would start to try things. And, you know, as I grew and, and progressed, that led to one thing led to another. Uh, I became a pole vaulter, which at the time was a, was just not a very common sport. Mm -hmm. um, and the story behind how I became a pole vaulter is actually not traditional either. Contrary to what I became as an older person, I was not athletic at all when I was younger. I liked sports, but I wasn't really, wasn't very fast, wasn't very strong. And so in seventh grade in Houston, Texas, that's the first time you can actually get into to school age sports. And I went out for the track team and tried every event that was possible. And I was just horrific at all of them, except pole vaulting. And I got like the eight place ribbon. <laughs> so that's what, that's what convinced me. Oh, pole vaulting is my thing. And so I stuck with pole vaulting and that's what I Interesting. did until I grew into my body and got faster and stronger. But, uh, and then that transition, I ended up being not too, too shabby of a pole vaulter, got me to school and then went yeah. from there. So that was the beginning of my exploration. Yeah. Very cool. I'm also curious you just talked about being in Houston. 
I'm curious what your sense was, if anything, of, I mean, your dad's a, he's a Marine, he's an aviator, you're living around bases, he's he's just, you know, he's dad, Mm -hmm. he's dad. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly he's an astronaut, which is a thing in the big wide world. And other than the move to Houston, I'm curious how that transition of your family from just another Marine family to astronaut, which is, you know, a cachet uh, and a small club in its own right, and... I think your dad was the third African-American ever selected into the astronaut corps. So that's all kind of, that's got a lot of sizzle to it in the outside world. Yeah. How, how if at all, did that trickle through and appear to you or, or change your sense of your dad or, or dynamics within your family? So I actually have, my, my middle daughter loves to refer to these things called flashbulb memories. I'm not sure it's a real thing in psychological terms, but she's used it enough that I'll adopt it. So I have a flashbulb <laughs> memory of the time frame when he was selected. The previous fall, fall of 79, was when my grandfather had passed away, my, my father's father. And I remember that because we woke up in the middle of the night, we drove down to Columbia, South Carolina in order to be there. And then, so then fast forward just a couple of months, uh, when he gets the, the news, you know, it was a very emotional moment because that was one of the things that, and he'll tell the story to this day. He goes, you know, the one one of his few true regrets in life is that Charles Bolden Sr. didn't get to see his son be selected into the astronaut program. And so that was why I remember a good portion of that time period. And then we we got into, uh, it ends up that Charlie B. had this propensity or this, this proclivity for old beat down vehicles. And uh, you remember the <laughs> BW van that he used to drive? I, I remember. <laughs> yeah. So he and Brian O'Connor, you know, they shared this, this affinity for, Brian O'Connor was another classmate of his, 68 Naval Academy. Same class uh, selection of, of mass astronauts, but we had the first tr- first entry into the the VW van collection of astronaut office. We drove that from Patuxent River, Maryland, down to Houston, Texas, and I, we stopped in Columbia. And I remember, you know, how big a deal it was for the for the Black community, not just the Carol- the South Carolinian community, but the Black South Carolinian community that that Charles Bolden, son of Columbia, South Carolina, had been selected to be a NASA astronaut. And the big deal that they made out of it and all of the, the the stuff that had gone, because at that point, no one you know of African-American descent had flown in space yet. Well, that's not true. Obviously, we know that the Russians flew the, yep. the, the Cuban, but to our knowledge, nobody had flown yet. So it was a really big deal. Uh, and then when we got to Houston, we entered into this really idyllic world where a lot of things just kind of sort of melted away. To my knowledge, at, at the age of 10, I didn't see any of the the astronaut office politics. So I didn't know how people were treating one another. To me, it was just a bunch of astronauts, a bunch of, when I first got there, I didn't know what to expect because space, I wasn't aware of Apollo in the way that maybe, you know, a lot of people were, it was just something that was there. I didn't think twice about it, yeah. but then I get it, you know, I'm getting introduced to to John Young and, and Bob Crippen and, you know, going further back, John Glenn came down, you know, you're seeing all these Titans of the industry. Celebrated, the yeah. Yeah. And at the time I'm just like, Okay, these are you know more grown men that are doing grown men things. But once we got settled in in life in the astronaut office, as you know, it, it's a pretty you know familial environment, and so it was really easy to kind of settle into that. And then living in Clear Lake, it's at the upper end of the middle class, if you will. So there weren't many difficulties of life, and so we just kind of fell into this somewhat idyllic yeah. lifestyle. You know, sports were there, school was there, friends were there. It was it was pretty easy. When I would leave Houston to go visit places, you know, you'd get this incredulity from people like, oh, my God, your dad is an astronaut. What's it like? 
And I eventually developed this kind of a of a repeated line. It's like, I don't know, what's it like for your dad to be your dad? Because that's to me, that's what it was. He was always at my soccer games, you know, hard on me for for homework, gave me a curfew. You know, we did things. We 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 went to church on Sundays. All of the things that the quote unquote nuclear family always did, we continued to do. And so there was no change in our day-to-day lifestyle just because he had become a United States astronaut. The the first time I think I truly realized you know, the significance of of his accomplishment was actually not in January of 1986, which was when his first flight went, but it was his next flight, which I think was in April of 90, I think. Because at that point, it all, that was after Challenger. That was the Hubble flight. Right. And and I was, you know, I was at the Naval Academy at the time. So now I know what service kind of starts to mean and all that. And it's really, it hits me like a ton of bricks, you know, and I remember sitting on top of the, um, not the VAB. Where is it that the families go and sit and watch? Um, yeah, there's a launch control center building down at the Kennedy Space Center. And, and typically, the families of a shuttle crew at the time, uh, they're, you know, they're being treated like very, very VIPs. They're hanging around in the conference room inside that building as the countdown goes on. And then they go up on the roof of the building, which gives them both privacy to just kind of be a little family group, like you said, right. and a great line of sight to the launch. Yeah. And, and I can remember... The fear that I had, um, but I'm standing next to my mother. And at this point, I'm, you know, a head taller than my mom, actually more than that, but, and just kind of holding her and recognizing her fear and anxiety happening. And I've got equal amounts of fear and anxiety, but there's a certain sense of obligation I have to kind of hold it in. And I am, I mean, tears are streaming down my face and I'm pretty sure I'm heaving, but I'm trying to be this, you know, strong midshipman holding his mother there. And that was the first time I really realized the significance of, of the life I'd lived to that point. The accomplishments that you know my father and his contemporaries, you know you and 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 Franklin and Pinky and all the others that I grew up around, really had done not just for the nation but for humanity, and it started to kind of come into, into yeah. focus at that point. Do you remember your feelings at the time of this first launch? Was it the same anxiety or not the same? So you know his first launch at the time was a record-setting launch because they had I don't know how many number of scrubs that they had, and so. Pre-Christmas, 1985, we'd gone down and everything was in set. Yeah, we'd actually like gone six out. different attempts to finally get off the launch pad. Something mm-hmm. crazy. It, what yeah. ends up is Steve Holly was just a bad luck charm. If he watches yes. or listens to this, yes. he'll he'll because he had that happen again many times. Fellow astronaut classmate of mine. Yeah, I think that was a running joke. Is that Steve was yep. always making these delays happen? But so I actually didn't get to see his first launch um, because you know, as you know, Charlie B. He's very you know there are certain obligations that you need to fulfill. In this case, my sister and I had to go back to school. And so okay. he sent us back to school. She went to stay with a friend. I went to stay with one of my best friends. And I can remember waking up on the morning of the launch because it was like a 605 launch and sitting on the pullout bed in, in my friend's house. He and I were sitting there watching it and wasn't feeling anything up until the time of three, two, one liftoff. And then for a brief amount of time, I got scared. And then after that, the awe took over, but I'm just watching it on a TV. So I'm yeah. just like everybody else in the nation. So it didn't you know, I never felt like I was robbed of the experience. It just wasn't anything that I got to experience at that point. Yeah. I was, you know, I was fortunate enough I'd gone to CSTS one, so I knew what a shuttle launch looked like in person. But watching him, it kind of kept it at a distance, almost like his career as an aviator. I didn't really see him fly. I knew what he did, knew what it was about, right. but it wasn't really. But it's abstract, in. yeah. Right, right. So, if I understand the story right, uh, you're in high school in Clear Lake City, Texas. Your dad's an astronaut. My understanding never was one, I can't imagine that he would have been one to uh, really try to tell you what you ought to do with your life. That's kind of not his way. 
So you're figuring out your own interests and desires for high school and after high school. And you decide to apply to the Naval Academy, which I was a little surprised to learn recently how much that surprised your dad. So Mm -hmm. he had gone there as well. And and lots of people might have thought, you know, like father, like son, he's probably leaning all over his boy to follow in his footsteps. Not so. So what drove you? What drew you and attracted you to make that decision? This is an easy answer. You. You. And people like you, you know, and I'm, and I'm not, you know, I'm not blowing smoke. It's literally, you know, from the t- age of 10 until the time I had decided to go to college, I had these amazing role models around me and they all had a lot of very similar consistencies in what made them into what they were. And, you know, with few exceptions, you being one of them, most of them were men. And so there was a lot of transference, if you will, for me to go, I could see myself that way, but nonetheless, being around you, Anna Fisher, Ellen, um, drawing a blank on her name, she was the doctor, or Ray said, you know, all of you all were part of this extended family that had this influence is you all are incredibly normal people, really smart and really talented, but normal people, the types of fun that you would have, the things that you all would do. It was just one of those environments that I thought was the right place to be. And even when you all weren't trying, you were doing things to improve the lives of the people around you. And that just was something from my grandparents through to my parents to, to my sister and I was just instilled in us. We always wanted to be around to do things for people. And it just seemed like the right fit. Now, full disclosure, the Naval Academy was not my first choice for college. Ah, <laughs> what was? I hesitate to say because I, I like them today. So the rest of the story is I only applied to four schools. And one of them was a de facto application. And that was the University of Southern California because my father had gone and got his master's degree there. I'd grown up for a portion of my young my childhood in Southern California, the Trojans, the burnt on, you know, the, the, the crimson and gold, all of those things were super exciting and attractive to me, but I never really pictured myself there. And as a result of either the PSAT or the SAT or something, I get this letter in the mail that says, hey, congratulations, you're accepted to the class of 93 of the University of Southern California. I kind of just put it to the side. I, don't, I didn't remember applying for it, but that, that happened. And if that happened today, it wouldn't happen today because USC is far more competitive than it used to be. But I had been recruited to go to Dartmouth uh, for track, and I had recruited to go to the United States Naval Academy for track. But the one school I really, really, really had my heart set on, and I can't for the life of me remember why now, uh, was Stanford. Mm. I focused all of my efforts on going to Stanford. Every essay I wrote, every questionnaire I filled out. At the time, the Pac-10 was a pretty prolific track and field conference, and so as even though I was one of the best pole vaulters in the state of Texas, I didn't rise to the level that Stanford was uh, going to pay attention to me. So I didn't have the added benefit. My grades were good, but everybody who applied yeah, to Stanford's grades didn't are have good. The, the icing on the cake. Right. So you have to have something else that goes in there. And I got rejected. That was the only one I got rejected from. I got accepted at Dartmouth, accepted in Naval Academy, accepted at University of Southern California. Uh, I did not get accepted into Stanford. And I remember being really, really upset and bothered by that. And um, the recruiting office at the Naval Academy probably won't like that I say this, but when I looked at my nomination letter to the Naval Academy, I was like, well, might as well go there. You know, everybody that I know that went there turned out pretty good. So let's let's go do it. <laughs> well, that's not that's not crappy reasoning. That's pretty yeah. good. So so that's how I ended up at the Naval Academy. You know, it's not the easiest path through college. I your dad shared the story with me once. Charlie B also went to the Naval Academy, of course, graduating at the class of sixty eight, which means he entered the Naval Academy sort of right in the crux of the Civil Rights Act. I mean, mm-hmm. a very portentous time and a very fraught time from a racial relations point of view. 
And I remember him telling me one time, just to give me a sense of how hard it was to get through, that he pretty well every night would crawl into the little <laughs> knee well of his desk. There, when mm -hmm. you sit at your desk where your feet go, he'd sort of curl up in there and have himself a good cry mm -hmm. pretty much every single night. And maybe that was mainly first year when everybody's deliberately beating on you to shape you into a mm -hmm. midshipman. When he would call home, say, it, that's the wrong place. I made a big mistake. I don't fit here. I got to get out of here. You know, come rescue me. Mm -hmm. What he would always get told was, just give it another week. Yep. yep. And he somehow, you know, he got through to the point where the crying eased up or stopped and mm -hmm. off he went. I can't imagine you found it any easier because it's a deliberately hard path. But what were your struggles at the academy? So to, to kind of segue from your previous question, this one is when I told him I was going to go and, he, and, and the story he tells is somewhat dramatized. It wasn't quite the way he remembers it. However, he did try to convince me that I didn't need to go there uh, because I think he always harbored this fear that I was trying to do to be something that others wanted me to be and not what I wanted to be. And that's somewhat prophetic as we get further out of my life because that wasn't far from the truth in some respects. But in this particular case, he's like, look, you don't have to go to the Naval Academy. Your mother and I have planned for it. You can go anywhere you want. Don't worry about tuition. Don't worry about that. Just make sure you're going to the place you want to be. And whether I had convinced myself that the Naval Academy was it or whether it truly was it, then it was it. And I was there. And unlike him, my plebe year, my, my first year, freshman year at the Naval Academy, it was hard, but it wasn't it wasn't right home and say, I hate it here hard. I had football. I'd walked onto the football team and I had track. And so those were good distractors from the rigors of living in the hall. That's what we call Bancroft Hall. The whole brigade of midshipmen lives in one ginormous dormitory. Right. It is massive and hasn't changed a whole lot on the outside. Um, they've done some pretty nice things on the inside. But, you know, life in the hall for my plea beer, while, you know, kind of crappy, didn't raise to the point where I was like, you know, what, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, and a 0.66 grade point average in my first semester didn't convince me I don't want to be here. <laughs> Wait, 0, 0. 0.66? 0. 0.66. I think okay. I had two passing grades. I went to an academic board. And then my second semester was like a 0.99. So, I really wasn't demonstrating this. This I, I, I was demonstrating to people that maybe I shouldn't be there. <laughs> the commitment to education of your grandparents was not showing through. Well, that, there, there's a whole different story there uh, that can tell you about the, the downfalls of being naturally gifted in things isn't always the gift that it appears to be. But a combination of legacy, my father had gone there, was a United States astronaut, a combination of what I brought to the table. There were some people that could see that there was potential there. And then, frankly, just a lot of sheer luck, I was able to stay at the Naval Academy in spite of or despite my poor academic performance and professional performance. So as we got into the second year, that's when things got really hard. And that's where the story that my father tells starts to become more accurate. I had this new, this new sense of freedom, if you will, because the second year, you can do a lot more than you could in the first year. Yeah, you get some privileges. You get a little bit of slack. Right. I had... I had achieved a little bit more success on the football field. I was on varsity and I was dressing and going and, and playing in big games and whatnot. But there was something about it that just wasn't quite sitting right with me. And I started to think about, you know, what life would be like at a different school. Unlike the advice his father had given him, hey, just give it one more week. He would tell me, you know, if, if things are bad for you, given, given all you've had in your life and the experience you've had, just think about what they're like for people who don't have that. So go and find someone else who's having a worse day than you're having and just be there for them and talk to them. And so that to me is probably one of the greatest legacies of not, you know, not just my father, but that's the academy itself is 
quite frankly, you could get the education you get at the United States Naval Academy at a lot of different schools. The rest of the experience is a little more unique, but more importantly, and I won't say that we're unique in this sense, but it, it is one of those things that it's, it's kind of rare. The relationships that you form in an environment like that are the ones that last a lifetime. And that's what kept me at the Naval Academy. It wasn't, it wasn't football. It wasn't track. It wasn't academics. It wasn't, it wasn't the legacy of the school. It was the people I was at the school with and the things that we went through together and experiences mm-hmm. that we had together that kept me there. And I don't know if I would have taken the time to, to really get out there and do that. Had my father not given me that advice, it's like, hey, someone's having it worse than you are. I can promise you. Go find them and go help them out kind of thing. Yeah, interesting. So you must have finally pulled your academics around into did. something that was at least a full integer. <laughs> well, the, the way that happened was, you know, I went in like probably most people go to any academy. It's like, I'm going to be an engineer. You know, first off, ah. growing up growing up in the shadow of shuttle, lots of engineers around. A lot of astronauts had test pilot backgrounds, engineering, science backgrounds. So I thought I was going to follow those footsteps. And I jockeyed back and forth between whether I was going to be an aerospace engineer or a systems engineer. And I hit into the buzzsaw of differential equations, calculus three, and computer science. And I that's what brought my grade point average down because I failed miserably at those things, which was a bit of a surprise because in high school, I had no problems whatsoever with, with the science programs. And this goes back to my statement of you know being gifted in something is not always the gift that it seems to be. I was lulled into a false sense of security and I, I got this, you know. In yeah. high school, I'd just go to class, I listen. I this. Yeah. Exactly. And listen and, and fine. Well, that doesn't fly for anyone at the Naval Academy. No matter how smart you are, you still have to put in the work. You still have to study because the academics are taking it to a whole different level. And I just didn't know how to study. And so it took me a full you know, three semesters to learn how to study. And then I started to pull my grades up as a result of that. Yeah. I, I still had some troubles with some of the later classes, but they weren't anything compared to what I had in the beginning. Yeah. And you you opted for aviation, which in one level seems really obvious, but I would imagine you get to the Naval Academy and you recognize there's a much wider array of pathways, whether it's a full career or just your your mandatory tour as an officer. Mm-hmm. What was it about aviation? So this part of my origin story is where we can talk about how important other people are to your success. No one does anything by themselves. Contrary to what you know, some very prolific social media personalities and, and mega billionaires want to tell people, you can't do anything by yourself. And in this case, because of my poor performance early on in my time at the Naval Academy, when it came time for service selection, which is when, you know, first class midshipmen decide where they're going to go, um, my class standing was not adequate for me to pick either aviation or the Marine Corps. Because uh, you pick by rank, you know, the best of the class gets the first pick and then and the, and the Navy only needs so many pilots. Right. So if the 10 guys in front of you all pick that, you're out of luck. Right. That, that was the way it was when I graduated. They've since revamped the system and it's much more fair. Instead of just your, your rank, there have to be other things to go into. But when I, we were there, when I was there, it was, little, it was a straight lineal number. And so by the time it came to me, I'd always want to be a Marine. Um, but by the time it got to me, when I went down to Smoke Hall, which is where in Bancroft Hall, where the service selection uh, happens... The dreaded words that I will never get out of my nightmares is Midshipman Bolden, welcome to the surface warfare community. Because that was where my class rank was. So yeah, so destroyers and, and yeah. Even even better. I had a destroyer tender. That's where I was oh. gonna be assigned as my first time around. Not even a combatant ship. Not even, not a, even a combatant ship, yeah. So uh that was not a, a pleasant day. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And and that had that been my course my life would be very, very different now because yeah. it was not anything I was excited about. I, I wasn't looking forward to it. I knew that there would be leading sailors involved in it, but it just didn't 
excite me. Well, unbeknownst to me, and this is where others come in and why no one does anything by themselves. So there were three people in my class who were not permitted to select United States Marine Corps as their service selection option for either, all of us were for class standing, but for whatever reason. And, and the year, this is somewhat important, the year we were selecting, the previous year, the Marine Corps had eliminated the requirement to go to OCS as a prerequisite officer to go Marine Corps. School. Yeah. Right, officer candidate school. We called it Leatherneck. So we didn't have to go to Leatherneck. And as a football player, the coach is like, you're absolutely not going to Leatherneck. Because in years past, every Marine option that went to Leatherneck came back 15 to 20 pounds lighter, less less strong than they were. Not, and that wasn't not ready good for, for football. Us. Yeah, exactly. So they they kept us from going. And, but because of that, our class was a, was one of the Top Gun classes. We all got there because we'd seen Top Gun in 1986. <laughs> and so there was a huge number of midshipmen who wanted to fly. Everyone wants to be an aviator. <laughs> exactly. And so as those numbers started ticking down, everybody's picking naval aviator, naval aviator, naval aviator. And then once the naval aviator slots went away, because there was no prerequisite to be a Marine, they started picking Marine aviator, Marine aviator, Marine aviator. And what that did is that sucked up Marine spots. And so once those went away, the Marines who would have been Marine aviators, like just picking Marine, Marine, Marine. By the time it got to me, there was none left. And by the time it got, and my roommate was one of the others and another classmate of ours was another. So when that word got out, there were three midshipmen, two legacy, both my roommate, his father had been a 20 plus year enlisted Marine. Charlie B had been well into his time. And then the third guy who was actually the honor graduate of the officer candidate school. The three of us were not Marines at that point. And I don't to this day know who it was. Um, I assume that he was a staffer on the Hill you know, former Marine or, or Marine uh, who heard about this and said, that's just not right. And so in, in 1993, some three poor ROTC scholarship students at some school in the United States got their Marine option slot either yanked out from underneath them uh, or shifted to a later date so that these three midshipmen from the United States Naval Academy could oh, commission wow. as Marine Crossers. Yeah. So that's how I became a Marine. And I also had bad eyesight, so I couldn't. I went into the basic school as a ground option Marine officer, and I did not have any aspirations at that point because of medical requirements to not go into aviation. And so I focused all my time on having fun, learning how to be a, a provisional rifle platoon commander, and I was going to go combat engineer or something along those lines, not infantry because I wasn't that crazy, but you know something close <laughs> to the infantry. And had it not been for uh, a gentleman, a fellow Naval Academy alum named Ed McGee class of 87. He was one of the staff platoon commanders at the basic school and an aviator himself, an A6BN, who had idolized Charles Bolden when he was growing up. And he recognized that there was a paucity of representation in marine aviation. And so he came and said, you're going to be an aviator. I was like, sir, I, I don't have the eyesight for it. He goes, you're going to be an aviator. And so he had me go take all the tests and I passed all the tests. And, oh, wow. and, and my performance at the basic school was contrary to my performance at the Naval Academy you know, exceptional. I did really, really well. Uh, and it allowed me to pick aviation out of the basic school. So that's how I got down to become an aviator. Boy, talk about the twists of fate and serendipity and and uh, really the, the invisible hand doing things that shape mm -hmm. what, what's open for you. But at, at both of those junctures, the, the selection to be a Marine and then my selection to go into aviation, Charlie B was like, uh, are you sure? You, you know, you don't <laughs> have to do these things. Being a Marine you know, he told the story of his decision to be a Marine and how my grandparents cried with him. Yeah. You know, so I think he and my mother looked at it somewhat similar. It was like, uh, why don't you go be on a ship? It's a lot safer, a lot less stressful. <laughs> so when I picked to be a Marine, you know, he he tried to talk me out of that. But by the time I'd gone to become an aviator, he realized there was no talking me out of it. And so he's like, all right, go for it. You know, but my eyesight being what it is, 
I'm a naval flight officer uh, by designation. So the I was guy who I was, runs all the weapon systems, right. sort of the backseater. I was the mini mock to Charlie B. That's what I was going to become. <laughs> you know, for those who are not familiar, Mike Mott tightened my life. He was there from the earliest days I can remember. I don't remember. He was test test uh, test guy as well. Ended up being programmatics. Eventually passed away from cancer. But but Mike Mott and my dad were inseparable at times. Yeah. And yeah. so that was I was okay with uh, with being a, a navigator because I knew that's what what Mini Mott had done. Very cool. So there are a couple other questions on my mind that I want to probe in our bit of time remaining. And one is I want to hear a little bit about you went to the Marine Corps. You had a long career yourself, retired as a colonel. And I remember when you retired, you talked about you having served in uniform to now try your hand in the private sector and help contribute to similar causes on a different avenue. But you've since now joined forces with your dad and put together the Bolden Group. And I'm curious, what drove that change? I'm curious, what, what would you be doing if you were not helping form and create the, the Bolden Group with, well, your dad and your sister and your whole family, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Again, serendipity probably is at play. My tail end of the Marine Corps, I got exposed to uh, some new concepts, new ideas. So technology was something that was at the forefront of my, my mind. And then infrastructure was another thing I was really interested in. And so my first foray into the private sector when I retired actually was not where I am now. And I'd gone to work with this startup, tech startup out of Europe, supposed to start their, their U.S. base. And it was exciting, but unfulfilling in the sense that a couple of things happened. A, the ethos, very different. You know, the Marine Corps, the astronaut office, any service-related job, there comes with it a fraternity that, that you can't really place anywhere else. And so our shared values, our shared commitment to doing something bigger than ourselves, all of those things were kind of absent from that first iteration of my attempt at the private sector. Couple that with watching Charlie B go about doing his thing. He is a, a generous individual, as you are well aware. And he would say yes to everything because he wants to help as many people as he can. And we were like, look, you hey, not only can you not do that, you shouldn't do that because not everybody is operating in good faith. And so through a couple of family discussions, I offered up the possibility of me coming to be his chief operating officer so that we kind of get things in order. And I think that was when he realized that he really didn't want to do a lot of the work he used to do. And so it's like, look, I want to retire. So rather than you be the chief operating officer, how about you you just take it and run with it? And so that's how um, we got into this current iteration of, of a professional trade, if you will. And the first person I called after that was one Dr. Kathy Sullivan and said, would you come and help me? Yeah, my arm get... is still sore from that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you were our very first believer and, and champion of what we were setting out to do. And and, and the Bolden Group at that point was when I actually started, it started to help me coalesce around the ideas that allowed me to continue to be the person who I've always wanted to be, which is, you know, a, a servant leader of sorts. And so we established the, the Charles F. Bolden Group to provide leadership for the global advancement of science, security, and now we're adding on to it, the emerging space economy. And the reason for that is because this will be the second time I say this, growing up in the shadow of shuttle, I saw all of the, the magnificence and, and amazement that space and space exploration invoking people, but there was a bit of a disconnect because they saw people doing it. And you've talked about this a lot. Everybody who's not in that, they look at you all and think that you're superhuman and that it, it's not for them and, and someone else is going to do it. And there was this belief, this false belief that only pilots and, and engineers, that's all that space was for. You got to be somebody other than me to do that. But I admire it. Right. 
you know, I listened to you talking to to the two funny astronauts and they said the same thing. And to me, that's just kind of really weird because I grew up around you all. And I know exactly what type of individuals you are. And I know that there are others that are just like you. And, and this is by no means a pejorative. There are people that are even far more talented than people who are in the astronaut office right now that are never going to get that opportunity to do it. And so as I took the history that both my father and I have and then bring you in and, and others who have a long proven track record of leading complex organizations in a very inclusive way and looking at it through a different lens because you came from a different place, I realized that that needed to be given a little bit more voice. And so all of our efforts now are oriented on creating opportunities for, for people from disadvantaged communities, underrepresented communities, emerging countries to get an equal place at the table than those traditional players. You know, traditional space, which is what most people see NASA as, you know, launch, satellites, human spaceflight, multiplanetary exploration, that's just a small sliver of what space is going to offer in the future. And if you walk down, you know, the main street of main, uh, of any town USA, you're going to see so many competing and complementary components to the economy that are eventually going to manifest themselves in space. And, and on the current path or trajectory you're on, we won't realize that to its fullest unless we get more people and in the discussion. The challenge that we face is there's the institutional space folks, which you've been right. part of, you know, NASA, ESA, Jackson, Rose Cosmos, that are not being exclusionary by de- by design. It's almost just a systemic process or program. And unless you're a really big organization with that legacy background, there's really no room for you at the table. And so where the Bolden Group is now trying to go and where we're trying to push the boundary is open people's eyes to all the other things that people can be contributors to. You know, I have taken your, one of your taglines and I tell people about it all the time is how many times are you going to find, you know, someone who is as vertical as Kathy Sullivan? Well, the only way you do that is you look outside the traditional norms. You know, it just so happens that the most vertical person on the planet is a woman. It, it has no bearing on whether she, it's an astronaut and, a, and an aquanaut. And this one happens to be, you know, the, 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 the force of nature that is Kathy Sullivan. Where do we find more Kathy Sullivans? Because when you came up, I've heard you tell the story many times, you were not deterred by the fact that it was all white males, but nonetheless, that's all you had to look to and go, okay, what's going to happen? Right. You know, I went, I had the good fortune of going to a, a space in Africa, the very first one, space in Africa conference in Nairobi, Kenya back in the spring. And I got to listen to the heads of agency from 22 of African nations talk about their aspirations in space. And on their own, they're never going to get there because the barrier to entry is just so high. There are some leadership principles that some of the institutional players can adopt that will force them to look in that direction. And then there are certain components of the leadership traits that we're familiar with that can be kind of laid in on top of these these emerging players to get them to speak in the same language. Yeah. And that's kind of where we're heading. And it's it's an uphill battle only because everybody thinks it's a billionaire boys club type of a race now. Yeah. Well, you, you said something really insightful. You said a lot of insightful things in your TED Talk. But on this point, something we've all, I think, seen and experienced, you capture it by saying ducks pick ducks. So if you're you're one of the guys in one of those big space agencies and you're, you have a responsibility to choose the next 10 people that can be your spacecraft engineers or your astronauts, whatever it might be. And you care about that and you take your obligation seriously and you want to you know, fulfill your duty and do right by the mission and the agency. So your default reasoning becomes, well, 
the people I know who succeeded at this came from these places and had these backgrounds and you know went through this pathway and so that's what I'm looking for I know I know that formula works so that's where I'm going to go shopping for the people that I can count on will deliver it again on one level that's completely valid and an absolutely normal human pattern making heuristic to use it really presumes that's the only one pathway and it really presumes that the path and the achievements and the excellence will look always exactly like that so you get the catch 22 i'm never going to look outside of there cuz i've never seen evidence that someone who comes a different path can pull it off and so the quandary then is you know, to create those alternate pathways so you can start to see you know the the youngsters from those african countries I bet a lot of people listening to this conversation, by the way, are surprised that small African nations have space programs, but but they do. And the aspirational aspect for their economy and their population is a big reason. So how do you start building the staircase that can let some of those young people who are, plenty of them are talented, talented enough, even exceptional enough to get on that path, but no one in our world can see them right now. So how do you break that conundrum? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's really frustrating to me today, and today, you know, categorically, the aversion to the concept or the idea behind the colloquial term woke and wokeism, you know, it's it's deemed to be this really bad concept because there's a there's a sect here in the United States and now growing around the world that see awareness and egalitarianism uh, as a bad thing. You can't come have this because I have it. If you come, that means I don't have it anymore. I have less of it. It's a very zero sum mentality. You know, back to the ducks pick ducks piece and how it has to, we have to kind of up in the paradigm is a lot of the areas that we need to be good at for space uh, because space is hard, space is expensive and space is complex and hard and complex are not the same, different topic for a different, different discussion. But because of those realities of, of, of that environment, performance is important. And what we have tended to do, to your point, is we look at the things that have been deemed successful performance-wise in the past and said, if it's good enough, we move in that direction. What ends up happening is, is we always like to think everything is a meritocracy. And I didn't coin this phrase, but I use it. But when in reality, what we're looking at is meritocracies. Everybody looks the same. And that may not be a physical looking the same. It could be a performance or, or background education same. But when we look to what needs to happen going forward in order to truly make the best of things, and here's another term that's become somewhat of a bad word, you have to look at the DEIS component of it, diversity, equity, inclusion, sustainability. And when I talk to people about that, I say, look, go to the Webster's Dictionary and look up the definitional explanation of those terms. Try to divorce yourself from the social commentary around them right now, and it'll start to make sense to you. Because even back in the in the Mercury Gemini days, when they all looked relatively the same, there was a significant amount of diversity in there. You know, you got the southern, you know, southern gentleman, if you will. You got the northeastern person. You got somebody from the Midwest. That in and of itself is a form of diversity that we often overlook. The diversity of background and education, and whatnot. Um, you know, different way of talking. All those things are important. And so, bringing different ideas to the table based off your experiences, life experiences, education is, is the first step to making sure you're moving forward on things. The inclusive component of it is, you know, you can have a room of seven really, really smart people. And if there's one person in charge and they know they're in charge and they want to remind everybody they're in charge, they probably are not be very inclusive. And so their ideas are going to be very staid and very mono, you know, monolithic. 
it's not until they get all seven people in the room involved in the discussion that they're going to get the most out of that group. And so that's when you talk about inclusion, you're missing the boat when you don't have certain voices at the table. The equitable yeah. portion of it is, you know, we've got the power, that zero sum mentality. We got to break that piece down because life is not zero sum. One of my favorite movies of all time is Arrival. You know, it, it's about determinism, but at the same time, they start talking about what the value of non-zero sum is. And, and the example I try to use with people is if you're a, if you're a purveyor of pies, if you have a pie in front of you, you're limited to what you can do with your with that pie. But if you have the ingredients and more importantly, the recipe, you can make as many pies as you want and you can go for days or weeks or months or years and never, never fall short. The same thing is applicable with opportunity and, and even value for that matter. So um, that's a bit of a ramble because this is one of those things I could talk about for a really, really long time. But if we are successful as the Bolden Group, as a, as a global leadership firm, we will be successful in integrating and, and, and cultivating more inclusive leadership styles for science, security, emerging space economy, so that the future looks a little bit more like we do, not, not what an industry currently looks like. It's more of an economy of a bunch of industries with a bunch of yeah. different people contributing. Yeah. So we're, we're right at time. I want to put one final question to you. When you're before an audience like Space in Africa seeing a lot of young people from kids to early professionals thinking about their career and their path forward. What are your top two bits of advice that you give them? Be yourself is the number one piece, because if you are inauthentic, it shows, and then you'll likely not be very happy with the path that you've chosen. So be yourself is the number one. And then the second one is don't be afraid of no, because there's a lot of no birds out there. And and if, if everybody took no as the answer, progress wouldn't happen. Because anytime someone thinks a little differently, that translates into this concept of change, which scares the bejesus out of most people. Um, you know, you can look at both our social environment, and our political environment here in the United States, and just see that front and center. People are scared and that's, you know, and, and resentful to a certain extent. Um, and so if you accept no, because someone has a certain emotion driving their decision-making process, then you're never going to go anywhere. You're not going to do anything. So those are the two. I'd say, you know, be yourself and do not be afraid of no, you know, work around the no and find find an answer, find a way to get to yes or create a whole new pathway. Hey, you know, one of my favorite memories and something I rely on still from my astronaut days goes to exactly that point. And, and not always on questions that were yes or no, but you'd ask mission control a question and you'd get some answer back. And very commonly, we'd look at each other and say, okay, so that was the wrong answer. <laughs> and then and then you start thinking, yeah, okay, that was the wrong answer. So how do we get to the better answer and, and move on mm -hmm. from there? It's great, great advice. Well, Che, not only could you talk for a long time on many of these topics, but you've got so many wonderful things to say and so insightful on all these topics. And it's just always a joy to chat with you. So thanks for spending an hour with us. Well, I, I cannot tell you how big my head is going to be after this, because having Dr. Kathy Sullivan tell me that I said anything insightful whatsoever <laughs> uh, is, you know, because like I said at the very beginning, you know, you've been part of my life since I can remember. And and I've always looked up, you know, to you and your contemporaries for all the, the amazing things you've done and, and just the impact you've had on my life. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And I look forward to a lot of good things that we'll do in the future and, and creating new opportunities for people. So thank you. We're shoulder to shoulder on the same plane right now, Mr. Bolden. Thank you, ma'am. Love you. Appreciate it. Love you too. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. 
for more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.